Everybody? So this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you a mystery. And this mystery is a truth that you all know. But it's a truth that is so um, wonderful. It's unfathomable. It's hard to believe it's true. And this is the mystery. That the God who made the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the eternal one who dwells in inaccessible light, this God is a lover with passionate, strong emotions. And he lives in an eternal communion of love and joy, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in this love of the Holy Trinity, this love of the Holy Trinity is creative. It gives light. And out of this love of the Holy Trinity, God made man in his image. He made man with a will, with an intellect, with emotions, so that we could know him and we could love him. And not just as, as servants, creatures, he wants to know us and love us intimately, as children, as friends, and even as a bride loves her husband. And that seems almost scandalous to me. That God would want that kind of intimacy with creatures that are so far below him. That he would raise us into that kind of intimacy. But we must believe it's true. We must believe it's true because scripture tells us over and over again. That God is a longing lover. A passionate lover. So Moses tells us. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Isaiah writes, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. John the Apostle tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. John the Baptist tells his disciple, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And Jesus himself prays to the Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. Now here is another mystery. Love makes one vulnerable. Love makes even the creator of the universe vulnerable. Love makes God vulnerable. The father of all can feel pain. God can feel rejection. God can be misunderstood. God loved Israel. And he grieved over her. He grieved over Israel's rejection. 
The Old Testament prophets over and over again lament Israel as a harlot who abandoned her husband, the husband who loves her. Isaiah, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Jeremiah, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. You followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Those are painful words. The words of a God who made himself vulnerable. Now, God knows our weakness. God created us, and he is wise. And he knew from the beginning what his love would cost him. Behold the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus willingly paid the price of our reconciliation with God, our maker, and our husband for the joy set before him, for the joy of having a bride. He willingly paid that price. But in order to enter into full intimacy with God, we must understand his emotions because he's called us to friendship. He's called us to union, and so we have to move with his emotions. We grieve when he grieves, and we rejoice when he rejoices. And this is the intimacy of friendship. So imagine the relationship between a husband and a wife. Suppose the wife is unfaithful to her husband. If the husband still loves her, he will take the wife back, right? But how should the wife respond? Shouldn't she be grieved over her sin? Should she not be sorrowful? Because her sorrow, without sorrow, there's no way to repair the damage of that, that breach. If she is not grieved, how can she love? Right? How can they share hearts if the wife refuses to feel the husband's pain? Sorrow for our sins is the first step in repentance. And repentance is the first step in reconciliation. Our sorrow moves God's heart. God is close to the humble, the contrite. He meets us with grace. He meets us with grace to repent. And repentance is the key to restoring or finding intimacy with God. And because we're made in his image, the same works for our brothers and sisters, right? If we offend our brothers, it is hard to be reconciled with them unless we're truly sorry, right? When someone is sorry, it moves our hearts too. Now repentance is more than grief. It is a change of action and mind and heart. 
But sorrow and grief, they are a catalyst for that change. It's a motivator. Godly sorrow opens our hearts. But what if God's grief is not a personal matter? It's not just about us. What if we are not the ones directly responsible for the sin that grieves God's heart? In these Wittenberg meetings, we spend a lot of time looking at the sins of the church and at the tragedies of our shared history. Now, I would guess that every one of us in this room has done something to contribute to the division in the church. At the same time, there is no one in this room that is responsible for the major schisms or divisions that we have today. So, why do we spend so much time looking backwards, looking into these things? And the answer is that we are part of a bigger story. We are part of a story that God has been writing for millennia. And if we love God, we have to care about His story. God lives in eternity. He's not like us. History is very present to him in a way that it's not to us. And the future is present to him in a way that we see very, very dimly. So through Jesus Christ, the church has been called into the bridal relationship that God wanted with Israel from the beginning, that God still intends with Israel. We are called into this relationship. We are born out of the love story that began with God and Israel. And if you look at our Christian history, you'll find that it follows a very similar pattern. We Christians have been unfaithful to our Lord. Through greed, immorality, oppression of our neighbors, disbelief, hatred, division. And our sin continues to play out between brothers and it resurfaces And our story until that sin is acknowledged and grieved. If we want deep intimacy with God, and this deep intimacy with the Trinity is our only hope for unity, we need to learn God's emotions. We need to move with God's emotions. We need to understand history the way he understands it. That's history past and history future, right? We become friends of God when we grieve with him over the things that grieve his heart and rejoice over the things that make him rejoice. And this is how the unity of the brethren will be achieved, not by trying to figure things out. The dialogue is good. It's important. It's very important. But when we are caught up into the love of the Trinity, then unity flows naturally. to end with a, a story. Towards the end of April, I went on a retreat with a very dear friend of mine, um, Philip Owen's wife. 
we went to the Texas beach and had three days of quiet. And shortly after midnight on Saturday, April 23rd, I woke up and I heard the Lord whispering, come out on the porch. And so I went. And I, I, I'm not at the beach very much. I'm a mountain person. I've never been to the beach very much. But I stood on the porch and there was a full moon. And the full moon was uh, reflecting on the waves and it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. The light was dancing. And it took me back to a vision I'd had the day before where I saw um, a dark, dark blue sky with lights flashing, white lights flashing all over. And I felt such joy and such wonder. And I knew that God was showing me his creative power, the power that created the universe. And I felt his joy in that creative power. And I felt like he was ah, like a, a young man showing his, his um, might, his glory, his magic to a bride he wanted to woo. And I was loving it. <laughs> he was loving that I was loving it. Then I went inside, and, um, and this vision sort of continued. And I saw, I saw the moon on the waves, and then I saw the pillar of fire that was at the Exodus. God in the fire, call on the fire, red and orange, and God's presence was in the fire. And he, he looked out of the fire at the Egyptians, and they, they were terrified. He looked out of the fire over Israel with a, with a passionate love. And so we have the moon on the waves, and the fire, the red, gold fire reflected in the waves. And then the wind is blowing. And the wind blows and blows, and it blows all night long. And it makes two, two columns. Of sea, and so now the moon is reflected on the sides, on the beach. You have the fire there, and you have over a million people up all night watching this. You have Egyptians, you have Israelites. No one is sleeping. And I realize this is the most glorious spectacle the world has ever seen. It is the most exciting, beautiful, glorious thing the world has ever seen. Oh, Israel was decked out in gold. They all had gold on because it was their wedding night. The Lord was taking Israel as his pride, and it was the most glorious thing the world has ever seen. And then I looked at my friend Caroline, and I said, God left Israel like a bride, and she broke his heart. And I started weeping. And I wept, and I wept, and I wept. <clears throat> and the two of us stayed up pretty much all night, talking, praying. And at 5 a.m. I went to bed, which was hard because the Lord had told me to get up at 6. <laughs> so I got up at 6. He told me he wanted me to walk on the, the beach with him. So I got up and I started walking on the beach and the sunrise was beautiful. It was already dark rose color when, when I got up 
and then the sun started coming up and the waves turned yellow and purple and it rose hot to pink and I just stood there in the surf looking at the sun. And a man came by who passed me and then he came back and looked at me and said, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I looked back at him with tears in my eyes and I said, yes, it's beautiful. And then he said, it's the most beautiful day of the year. And it hits me all of a sudden, I knew what that day was. It was Passover. I didn't know it was Passover until he said that. I had not thought of it. I don't observe Passover. <laughs> I did not know. Oh, but it was a glorious day. And I realized I was walking in the sunrise like the Israelites walked the break of day, first watch of the day they walked through the sea. This was one of the most intimate experiences I've ever had with God. And it filled my heart with a love for Israel, a longing for the church to be joined with Israel as a faithful, pure bride. It filled me with a love for God that would love us so deeply that he would become vulnerable, that he would risk our rejection and pursue us with a steadfast love that never fails. And so I was a grief that I treasure deeply. How do we grieve well? My sense is that in the Western church, certainly in America, in my home country, we have lost some of the ability to grieve, maybe most of the ability to grieve. This may be another consequence of separating ourselves from our Jewish roots. Our approach to pain is not grief. Instead, I think it can be summarized with two words. Clinical. We diagnose and we cut out the source of the pain. Or prescribe drugs to mask the fact that the pain is there. Second word. Cynical. We decide to become accustomed to the pain. So much that we inflict it on others and ridicule anyone who expresses hope of healing. In scripture we do not see God responding to pain, the pain of his heart, in either of these ways. He does not simply cut out the source of pain and discard it. He never masks it or doles his own pain. He also never accepts the pain as normal. Instead, God grieves. I would like to invite us to learn about grieving from three Messianic Jewish friends. 
Dr. Richard Harvey, who is here with us. Yeshua. Jesus is also here with us. And finally, Dr. Jonathan Kaplan, uh, a rabbi in my hometown whom I have had the privilege of getting to know in the last year. He is not here with us. But I met with him before I came and discussed with him this teaching. So first, Richard Harvey. In Folkenroda, where I first met Richard, I asked him about the practice of lament. The next day, he spoke in his talk about the Jewish tradition of lament. For me, this was very helpful. Lament tradition, a frequent response to catastrophe, meaninglessness, delay in the redemption of the faithful, and judgment on the wicked. I like the third bullet. Lament form allows arguing with good and bad theology. It allows an expression of anger and frustration. It's not meant to solve the intellectual questions about the origin and meaning of suffering, but it provides a structured way for the faithful to express their suffering to God and cope with it. Thank you, Richard, for bringing this to us. The next Messianic Jew to help us is Yeshua, the first of our many brothers. I invite you to keep Richard's thoughts in mind as we learn from passages in the Gospel where Jesus grieved or spoke about grief. I will bring out seven actions of grieving. One of these, or maybe more than one, will be helpful to you in the next four days. To enter into the grief of God's heart concerning the division of the body of Christ. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be given comfort. Entering into grieving opens you up for God to comfort you. But there's an important process. It's not one act. And it's important to refuse all comfort except God's. So this is the first action, is to refuse consolation or comfort unless it's from God which works very much against the tendencies of our modern Western culture. This is a passage from a book called The Discipline, a chapter called, called The Discipline of Lament from a book written by an African Catholic and a Protestant American. The voice from Rama refuses to be consoled. These are profound words in a world full of easy ways of consoling ourselves. Rachel's cry refuses to spiritualize, explain away, ignore, or deny the depth and truth of suffering in the world. She rejects soothing words and can't we all just get along type sentiments. Her refusal takes seriously the rupture and wounds of the world as well as the deep cost of seeking healing. Rachel allows the truth to shake her to the very core. Matthew 17. When Jesus and his disciples came down from the mountain, they met a crowd of people. 
And a man came and fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and experiences tremendous suffering. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus said, you unbelieving and perverse generation of Israel, how long will I put up with you? Bring your son to me. So the second action of grieving, to express frustration with the powerlessness of the church. Now you have to be careful how and when you do this. I would recommend expressing this frustration to God, primarily. John 11. When Jesus arrived at the town of Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. When Jesus saw Mary and the Jews crying, he was deeply moved with his spirit and greatly troubled. Action number three, change your location to draw near to pain. This is very important. A physical change of your location. Now, we have done that. We are all here. We have drawn near to a, the source of one place of pain in the body of Christ. We also have done this in the other places we have been. I think of our trip to Buchenwald, uh, the concentration camp in Germany. Change your location to draw near to the source of pain. We see Jesus came to Bethany. He changed his location. He drew near to the source of Mary and Martha's pain. Jesus said to the Jews, where did you put Lazarus' body? They said, Lord, come, we will show you. And Jesus wept. So then he draws even nearer to the source of the pain. He walks, goes right to the tomb where the dead man is. I think it's very beautiful the sisters from Darmstadt have brought this menorah and this Bible, this very precious, very old Bible, to be with us in this meeting. And when we put the Bible up yesterday, uh, my request to Sister Leticia was, well, if I had my way, I would open it to John 17. And she tried, very kindly. And it didn't work because of the table. The Bible wanted to fall off because John 17 is later in the Bible. It was unbalanced. So she said, I believe prophetically, let's open it to Isaiah 53. So this Bible is open to Isaiah 53. I invite you to come up at some point and just be before the Word of God as it speaks of the man of sorrows. And we see it in this passage. Jesus approached, Luke 19, and saw the city of Jerusalem. He wept over it and said, If you had only known that day which would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Action number four. Engage your imagination. Jesus is engaging his imagination. He imagines what would have happened if they had known. So he's thinking. He's saying, this is what could have been, but now it's lost. And so this is a very powerful way to enter into grief. 
is to think back and say, what has been lost? One example. Jesus said that a key to the world knowing that he is from God is the unity of his church. How many souls have been lost through the millennia? Because they've looked at the divided church and said, that can't be God. Imagine what has been lost in the past. The day will come on you when your enemies, the Romans, will build a great battle bank against you and surround you on every side. You can also imagine what could be lost in the future and grieve that. Enter into God's grief. As Amy said so well, the past, the present, and the future are one to the God who is in eternity, who was and is and is to come. They will destroy Jerusalem down to the ground with you and your children within its walls. And of course, this came to pass. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus is looking at what's past, what's present, and what's future, and he's not afraid to enter into what has been lost. Mark chapter 2, Jesus said to them, the guests of the bridegroom do not fast when he is with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will leave them, and then they will begin to fast. So traditionally, I think he's pulling on the tradition that fasting is a way to express sorrow and grief. So, the fifth action, fast from food. Now, there are other ways to fast, of course, and we honor those. But there's something about fasting from food that engages your body, engages your soul, and does battle in a way that is powerful. And so, if the, we'll talk more about this on Saturday, but... One of the actions we recommend in the 500 days between June 18th, 2016, the end of our meeting, and October 31st, 2017, the 500th anniversary, is fasting. Fasting, prayer, and study. And George Miley and some others will speak about what it means to fast for 500 days, because obviously you can't fast from food for 500 days. More on this passage of two. Oh, no, 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 this is a new one. Okay. John 16. I tell you the truth, you will cry and mourn when I leave, but in this world you will rejoice. You will mourn, but your sorrow will become joy. So, action number six is to weep. To weep. I remember in Aunt when Verena presented the condition of the Catholic Church leading up to the time of Luther. And after she finished, we just sat silent. And then we heard this wail come forth. And Sandy just had grief come over her, and she started to mourn and weep. And it changed something about us and about that meeting to have this audible wailing and mourning. Don't be afraid to let the tears of God flow through you. He continues, a woman giving birth has great pain at the time she is giving birth. 
that after she gives birth, she forgets her pain because of her great joy in her new baby. In the same way, your hearts will be filled with sadness when I leave, but when I return, your hearts will be filled with joy, and no one will be able to take this joy away from you. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The seventh comes from Mark 14. Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he became deeply grieved and troubled. He said to them, My soul is overcome with sorrow to the point of death. So this is action number seven. Seek companionship. Seek companionship. Find those who you trust, who can grieve with you. He took his three most trusted friends to go with him as he was entering into grief and sorrow beyond anything anyone has ever known before or since. But then, he said, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther away, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, he might not experience this time of great suffering. So seeking companionship is important, but also seeking solitude. There are times when it will be helpful to your grieving to be with people and to enter in with them into grieving. There will be times when you need to be by yourself and just be with the Lord. So learning to grieve well. Refuse all comfort except God's. Express your frustration with the powerlessness of the church. Change your location to draw near to pain. Imagine what is lost, what has been lost, and what could be lost if things don't change. Fast from food. Weep. Seek companionship. Also, seek solitude. For us Westerners, we may need permission to enter into some of these seven activities. Our culture does not give us this permission. Jesus is giving us this permission. One reason we have abandoned the practice of grieving is that there can be inappropriate grieving. Jesus was aware of this himself. Inappropriate grieving, Mark 5. When they arrived at Jairus' house, Jesus found the house full of noise and disorder. People were crying and wailing very loudly. He entered the house and said to them, Why are you crying and wailing? The little girl is not dead, but is only sleeping. They laughed at him. After Jesus told everyone to leave the house, he took the girl's father and mother and his disciples and went into the child's room. Jesus took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I tell you, get up. Immediately the 12-year-old girl stood up and began to walk around the house. Everyone was totally amazed. So there's inappropriate grieving, but there's also inappropriate non-grieving. This is the greater danger for us, I think. We played the flute for you, but you didn't. To what will I compare this generation of Israel? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the public market and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang the song of the dead for you, but you did not mourn. 
So when the invitation comes from God to enter into the pain of his heart, it is inappropriate to not grieve. Let's, let's be less afraid of grieving inappropriately and more concerned that we would not grieve and not join God in the pain of his heart in these days together. And here at the end I will turn to our friend Jonathan Kaplan. He sent me a paper he had written for the Harvard Theological Review on Paul's passage about grieving in 2 Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, which is a passage I recommend that you read and pray through this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what Rabbi Jonathan wrote. The experience of grief and comfort is not, for Paul, an unnatural state. Rather, these experiences of suffering and grief are essential facets of reconciliation and paradise. Paul sees the Corinthians' participation in this cycle of suffering and comfort as identification with the sufferings of Messiah and the abundant consolation made available in the Messiah. The death and resurrection of Jesus not only answers the grief Paul and the Corinthians face, but also enable Paul to embrace this pain and invite the Corinthians to join him in the texture of salvation that moves from death to life. For Paul, comfort comes as God's work to assuage this pain and grief. Comfort is part of the process of reconciliation and salvation, leading to a renewed participation of the Corinthians in the common work of Paul and the communities he founded. So I will close by leaving up on the screen for us to consider 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, which is very much the heart of the passage that Dr. Kaplan writes about. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So we are now entering a time of personal response to what's been shared by Amy and these words we've heard from Richard, from Jesus, and from Dr. Kaplan. This will give you a chance to reflect in your own heart and be with the Lord. You might want to remain in this room. You might want to come up and be before the Bible. We'll leave the scripture up. You may want to go to other places in the building or outside and walk. We will be back here at 11 a.m. so you have some time. We have the whole conference center to ourselves. So don't hesitate to enter into other smaller meeting rooms that are unlocked. Make them your prayer closet. Now, I want to ask you to maintain silence during the next hour. The problem with that is we also have morning coffee set out. <laughs> with cooking and pastries. So the tendency will be to gather around the coffee pot and share, and of course that's natural. But I want to encourage you to consider the Lord is speaking to us and setting a direction for our days together. And we want to enter in, as Sandy said, as deeply 
as we can to the deep waters that God has for us. Come Holy Spirit. Amen.